Welcome to the Mormon Faircast. I'm Ned Skarsbrick and one of the many volunteers of Fair Mormon who help those with faith issues. These podcasts will be a series of nine episodes done by Karen Trifoletti from the I Believe podcast. Each episode deals with issues regarding how the Bible is a reliable source of truth. These podcasts are used by permission of Karen Trifoletti and the I Believe podcast group. And now, the authenticity of the Bible. I'm Andrew Hancock, producer of I Believe Podcasts, intended for all truth seekers, from agnostic and religiously unaffiliated to those intellectually struggling, or friends of other faiths seeking to know more about life's meaning, Christianity, or Christ's church. Your host is Karen Trifoletti, a self-identified, perfectly imperfect, but graced follower of Jesus Christ. For more podcasts or information, please visit our website at iBelievePodcast.com or subscribe on iTunes. Here's Karen. Welcome again, listeners, to I Believe Podcast, Expressions of Faith. We would like to extend a welcome back to our special guest, D.M. Johnson. Welcome, Dave. Good to be here. We're talking today about the evidence we have in regard to the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. You know, many people hear different things about the Bible and its transmission in popular movies and books, and it can be hard to know what the true story is. So our goal today is for people to understand the manuscript evidence that lets us know that we can have confidence in what the New Testament says. Uh, Dave, we've had some good questions come in after the overview cast. One of our listeners uh, asked if we could address the decision-making process in terms of what actually made it into the Bible as we now have it. I know we're going to cover the Gnostic Gospels when we cover the New Testament Gospels being rooted in eyewitness testimony, but I think it would be helpful uh, and people would find interesting in general to understand what the approach was for determining inclusion or exclusion from the biblical canon. Can you speak to that? There were really three essential things that were taken into consideration in the early years of Christianity. The first was apostolicity, uh, the concept that a book had to be written by an apostle or by an associate of an apostle. And so this meant that anything that was written after 100 AD in the second century was pretty much automatically rejected. Uh, Then you had the concept of orthodoxy, and this meant that the book in consideration needed to be consistent with already known teachings of Jesus and his apostles. And the early church knew this from hymns and charisma and oral tradition, apostolic tradition, and so on. And then that third concept is Catholicity. And the term doesn't mean anything to do with Roman Catholicism. It just meant that it had to be generally accepted by the church. And a couple of examples that we have of these, uh, we had the letter to the Laodiceans that was basically a pastiche of, of four books, and it was not put in. We had a third Corinthians that was uh, found to be a forgery, and it wasn't put in. We had the epistle of Barnabas, and, and if you look at the Muriatorian canon early on, uh, it said, hey, this is good, and, and it should be read, but it's not scripture because it was written in our time, in other words, the second century. So there's some examples of that, and it should also be understood that we have indications in the Bible that we don't have everything the apostles wrote. Uh, one example of this is in 1 Corinthians 5.9. Paul mentions that he had written to them previously, and that letter does not survive in our current canon. Perfect. Thank you. And please continue to, to send questions to us. We love the engagement. Uh, Dave, what I'd like to do to start off this cast is to really lay out the manuscript evidence we have with the New Testament. I know 
The New Testament is the most attested book of antiquity in terms of manuscript copies, but I think our listeners might find it interesting to talk through some of the numbers uh, in more detail than we did in the overview and then perhaps contrast it with some of the other classical works of authors from antiquity to give us a better perspective. And then as we go through this material, I think it would be good also if we can talk to some common misperceptions, maybe dispel a few myths along the way regarding its transmission. So Dave, let's start off with the manuscript evidence. Well, as of September 2013, we had 5,838 Greek manuscripts officially counted by the Institute of New Testament Textual Research in Münster, Germany. And we have some of those manuscripts that are very early, some that are uh, fragmentary, uh, and some that are very lengthy. If we think about that, though, uh, the, the 5,838 copies, the average author has 20 copies, and it's 500 years until, on average until we see those copies. And so if we take all of the records that we have from before the printing press from the average author versus the New Testament, the average authors, it would stack up four feet high, and with the New Testament, you'd have a stack that's a mile high. Mm-hmm. And some people have a hard time fathoming that. It's easier for them to think of it in, in a financial example. And so you're, if your average author made 20000 a year, the New Testament would make $20 million a year. And so people have asked me, hey, what about the early uh, witnesses? What about the early copies? And we have 12 manuscripts from the 100s, 64 from the 200s, and 48 from the 300s. And so we have a total of 124 manuscripts from the first 300 years of the composition of the New Testament canon. And a lot of these are fragmentary papyri, but... Uh, the whole New Testament can be found within those multiple times. And if we look at overall our manuscripts, the average Greek New Testament manuscript is over 450 pages. Thanks, Dave. And we refer people to Dan Wallace if they'd like to see the sources. We'll post those on the website. Um, You know, I know there are roughly 10,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament as well in just Latin. So what does the manuscript count look like, Dave, if we add in all the other manuscripts from other languages into that count? We have a lot of other languages, um, Coptic, Syriac, Old Church Slavonic, all kinds of different languages. If we add all of that in there, we have an estimated twenty-five to 30,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament. And so we actually have 2.6 million handwritten pages of New Testament text, and that gives us hundreds of witnesses for each New Testament book. And in addition to that, we also have over a million quotations by of the New Testament by church fathers that would allow us to reconstruct uh, a large portion of the New Testament. Excellent. And when I think about this, it makes me reflect on our last cast. We talked about that passage where people were fairly sure of the essentials of what Josephus said, but there was some speculation right on the exact wording. It's interesting that with Josephus, we're waiting, what, 800 years before we get any manuscripts, and then when we get them, we have about you know over 20 copies. And for the most part, people feel pretty confident about what he said. So it seems logical that we could be much more certain about what the New Testament said because we have such a wealth of manuscripts, as you just pointed out. That's right. And if you're out there and you've been thinking about the Bible, I just ask you to be consistent in how you treat any other piece of ancient literature. Let's think about this for a minute. If someone is skeptical based on the evidence that we have for the Bible... You know, twenty-five to thirty thousand copies. You should be a thousand times skeptical of of other literature from some of these other classical authors because we have a thousand times more evidence. And so, the originals uh, or the autographs, as we call them, uh, they don't survive from the Bible. Uh, but we don't have any of those autographs from antiquity of these other documents either. 
And so uh, if someone doesn't think we can trust something just because the originals don't exist, you'd have to throw out all canons of history. And so that's just not a rational way to be. And if we look at the dates on some of these things, again, Plutarch and Josephus were waiting 800 years. Uh, Polybius, 1,200 years. Pisanius, huge gaps in the works of Pisanius. And we're waiting 1,400 years. Herodotus, 1,500 years. Xenophon's Hellenica, 1,800 years we're waiting. Yeah, so there's some excellent evidence there. And just in terms of the overall volume that we've discussed and the early dates from which they were written to when we start seeing copies in that, that shorter span of time, I think it's overwhelming. Um, but because the copyists weren't like a printing press, you know, there were sometimes changes in the text. When we have a place where there's more than one reading of a word, we call that a variant. We've addressed that briefly in our uh, other casts. This is a point where I think lots of people then start to diverge and get you know different things from the numbers. So it's really important that we examine this. Dave, let's walk through variants and put that into perspective. Um, it seems logical that due to the large volume of records we have, we would also have a fair amount of variants. So let's look at the kinds of variants we have. Yeah, it's estimated by most scholars we have anywhere from 200,000 to 400,000 variants. And so we have more variants than we do words in the New Testament. That can kind of scare people mm-hmm. when you hear it that way. But there's different kinds of variants. And just at the outset, if you're out there thinking about that and, and worried about that, you need to realize that 99% of these variants have no effect on the meaning whatsoever. For example, 70 to 80% of these are, are spelling variants. That's very significant. Very significant. So if you took the high estimate, the 400,000, and you, just the spelling would take out you know, 280 to 320,000 of those variants. We also have something called movable new in Greek, which is kind of the concept of you say a book or an apple. It doesn't affect the meaning whatsoever. There's also places where you have a definite article with a proper name, the Mary and the Joseph. You would never say it that way in English. So there's things like that as well. And those are so primary because they eliminate so many of those variants right off the bat. I think some of our listeners might find it interesting how some of the early Christians read scriptures and had it read to them. You know, we've read about lectionaries. Um, that has a bearing on how we perceive and what we read about these variants. Would you mind discussing the implications of lectionaries? Lectionaries were basically like a little vignette of scripture that they would do for maybe a daily scripture reading. They'd read uh, several verses or a parable or a portion of scripture. And so sometimes you'd have places like, for instance, in the Gospel of Mark, in the Greek, we have 89 verses in a row where it's it's already said Jesus and it refers to him as only he. If you're taking out a portion of that, you can't just start off by saying when he was going somewhere. Nobody will know who you're talking about. And so we do have a lot of lectionaries, actually about... Uh, 2,200 of our manuscripts are are lectionaries. We also have uh, Greek is a really highly inflected language. And so, for instance, uh, Jesus loves Paul in Greek. There's 16 ways to say that in Greek, but yet we translate it uh, the same way in English. It counts as a variant. We have times where there's missing letters or a a scribe just skipped over a word or a line, um, and those are things that are very uh, easy to detect. And so uh, Wallace estimates that somewhere between uh, a fourth of 1% or 1% are both meaningful and viable, meaning it could go back to the original. Such good information. Um, We do know that there were sometimes scribes who did make changes along the way. Sometimes they may have been trying to correct something, and sometimes it was driven by ideological reasons. Um, Let's walk through some of these interesting variants I'd also like to assure people as we go, again, if you're processing this with us, that the core doctrines about the word being made flesh, 
Jesus dying for the sins of the world by crucifixion and his resurrection are not affected by any of these variants that we're talking about right now. I'd like to walk through some of the more famous passages that, that people may be hearing about. Maybe we can start with John 7, Dave. Yeah, let's start with this most famous one. This is the, the famous story of the woman taken in adultery. And as we look back at our old manuscripts, uh, it wasn't in there. We didn't have it. There's an old manuscript. We have a P66 that dates from between 150 to 200. It's not in there. We don't have it in Codex uh, Sinaiticus or Codex Vaticanus. And a lot of the newer translations that use all of the evidence that we have will we'll base that off of there, and they'll put this um, in brackets. Uh, it also should be noted that in some of our early manuscripts, this, this passage is actually found in the Gospel of Luke. And, of course, now in our present-day scriptures, we see it just in John. And so scholars believe that most likely this was not in our originals, and it certainly was not original to the Gospel of John. And it's interesting to me that every Jesus movie, right, has this scene in it. Um, it's really a powerful story, and it's it's cherished by many followers of Jesus. What's interesting to point out is that the story is consistent with the teachings of what we see in the New Testament with Jesus. So even if it doesn't go back to the original, it doesn't change core doctrine or our view of him. So let's you know let's talk about the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, the woman taken in adultery and this ending in Mark are, are by far the longest two passages that are thought to not go back to the original and have been added by scribes. And the verses we're going to talk about here is Mark 16, 9 through 20, basically the last 12 verses of Mark. And those, in all likelihood, don't go back to the original text. And, and we know this because they're not in our earliest and best manuscripts, like Sinaiticus, like Vaticanus, or our early Latin or Syriac, or even our Armenian manuscripts. And they're also, it's also not mentioned by any of our early church fathers. And so we hear in this passage that there would be signs that would follow uh, the the followers of Jesus, that they would be able to pick up snakes and drink poison. Uh, there's also some resurrection appearances in there, but it's also important to realize that these verses have been added after the resurrection has, has taken place. And so what scholars have come to realize is this probably means that the original uh, of Mark did not have this in it that would have ended at, at verse 8. And it's important to note that virtually all the translations, all the new ones that use this evidence, uh, mark this passage like the one we just spoke about in a way that you can tell. It doesn't go back. Uh, you can see either a footnote or sometimes it'll have double brackets with a footnote that'll state, hey, this is not in our earliest and best manuscripts. And so I've, with the exception of the King James, uh, most of them will have a footnote or something like that with that kind of indication. And for if you're interested out there uh, in these kinds of notes around these, uh, the NET Bible, the NET Bible, is a really good resource. You can look at it on online and see the textual criticism notes and see uh, what scholars have said about these various passages and where they are found. Perfect, and that link will be on our site as well. Um, I understand there's some pretty interesting news around the Gospel of Mark that was actually brought up in a debate that Dan Wallace had with Dr. Ehrman. Um, there was a lot of buzz around this on some of the various biblical sites out there a while back. Could you just touch on that discovery that was brought up? Ehrman and Wallace had a debate a while back. And Wallace revealed that there's been a discovery of an early manuscript from the Gospel of Mark and it looks like one paleographer is thinking that it may date to the first century. And there's going to be a work coming out on this new discovery. And if it really does end up dating to the first century, this will will date earlier than P52, which we've talked about, which is right now our oldest cataloged manuscript for the New Testament. And so this kind of has the biblical world a little bit of a mm -hmm. buzz. And, and the manuscript comes from Mark. And so this passage that we just talked about, a lot of people are wondering, hey, what if, what if there's a different ending on there? What, they're wondering if it might shed some light on that controversy we just talked about. 
Interesting. And I've seen several news stories over the years um, where, you know, people in these churches would handle snakes and they're killed because the snake bites from handling them. Uh, I know this has prompted some states where they've even gone so far as to create laws so people can't have those kinds of incidents and handle snakes in religious services. And, you know, it's a tragedy. It makes me think that, first of all, these I wish these folks would know that, that Christ would never ask us to test our power over nature to prove our access to real spiritual power and gifts. And secondly, that these verses weren't even in the original New Testament. So I think it's important to state that even with this passage being added, it doesn't change our view of Jesus or any doctrine. So even though these don't affect doctrine, you know, they're interesting to talk about. Um, let's, let's talk about an example of where scribes added or changed something for a theological reason, as in 1 John 5, 7, and 8. Yeah, and this passage is sometimes called the Joannine comma. And <clears throat> let's read what it says in the King James there, Karen. Sure. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three are one. So most scholars agree that this is the only place in the Bible where it seems at least like the Trinity is being explicitly taught. And, and we know that this verse was not in the original New Testament, and scholars have known this for almost five centuries. It actually uh, came from an 8th century homily, and it was added into the, the Latin text. This, this was not even in the Greek text until 1520. And so we, again, will leave a note there uh, where you can go and look at the link in the, in the Net Bible and see some of these different textual notes there. But I thought it was funny when I, I was watching uh, one of the debates that Dr. Ehrman had with uh, Dr. Wallace. And Dr. Ehrman said that in, in 1952, the RSV actually corrected this. Mm. And he said his grandfather went through the roof and said, they took out the Trinity. <laughs> he, was, he was really uh, upset about this. But, but virtually all of the modern translations... Um, where we use these newly discovered manuscripts have corrected this. The NIV, the NASB, the Net Bible, the ESV, even the New King James has a footnote that states that basically only the very late four or five manuscripts have this in Greek. The, the King James is the only version that has left this intact with no footnote as to its authenticity. So it's important to just state, uh, as we as we look back at this passage, we just talked about that it really was... Uh, since the Council of Nicaea, uh, that ideology that drove the insertion of the verse, it wasn't as if this, this passage made people start, start thinking that way. Thanks, Dave. Let's talk about a time or an instance you can think of where there was a variant that wasn't thought to go back to the original, and then some evidence came forward, which put the reading back in question as to what the earlier version said. This is a fascinating one. Revelation thirteen eighteen is the famous verse in the Bible uh, that names the number of the beast. Most people out there probably know the number of the beast from horror movies or different things. It's all over in pop culture. But there was a variant that showed uh, the number of the beast as 616. And some people might look at that and think, well, okay, that's just one uh, instance. But yeah, this, it's 666. But in fact, uh, we now know that the earliest copy of that passage has 616. So here's a case where it's possible that 616 was in the originals, or maybe it's 666. We, we don't know, but it's, it's interesting. Hmm. That's great. And, and isn't it Dan Wallace in his lectures that makes the joke online that this is the neighbor of the beast, the 616, who lives down the street? Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Um, you know, sometimes we get caught up in those things. It's pretty clear that nobody bases their faith in Jesus Christ on the fact that the number of the beast is six six six, right? Um, so again, we see a situation that doesn't affect core beliefs or doctrines. So that's something to consider for all of you. Um, let's move on to another passage widely discussed. Specifically, I'm referring to the one in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Yeah, and I got a, a lot of questions about this from our listeners, which was great. It's in Luke twenty-two forty-three through forty-four, and this is the one where Jesus is bleeding in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating blood. And, and this was one of Airman's top verses that he referenced in misquoting Jesus. And, and Airman basically was saying that he didn't think it went back to the original. I know some of these passages that are disputed have really complex issues behind them. And I know in Bart Ehrman's work, Misquoting Jesus, he talks about the concept of docetism and anti-docetism with relation to this passage. I think that might be a new term for some of our listeners. Can you, Dave, just paraphrase some points that each side makes both for and against this passage and its authenticity? Yeah, somebody talks about the gospel of Luke being docetic. That term means that Jesus only appeared to be human. He didn't really suffer, and there's, you know, his, his feet maybe didn't touch the ground. He only appeared to be human. And so a lot of people, when they read Luke, they come away thinking, hey, he, he's not as in agony or portrayed quite the same way as he is, for example, in the Gospel of Mark. And so that's one of the things that people thought, well, Jesus doesn't look like he's having as much trouble in Luke, and they think these verses were put in there to show, okay, he really did suffer. And Bart Ehrman points out that the chiasmus um, is destroyed by this insertion. And so it is important to acknowledge that um, it's not in some of our early and important manuscripts. It is in some, but but it's also missing from some. And some manuscripts also have these verses over in Matthew. And so these these passages sometimes will have little obelisks in it. The, The scribes would put these little marks that would indicate that they weren't sure if they were authentic. And I like to look at both sides of issues. And, and for those of you who are out there, I've been contacted about, about this one. I actually reached out to um, Tyndale House, Cambridge. And for those of you guys who aren't aware of, of that, it basically is a residential center for biblical research. At any given time, they have 40 or 50 scholars there. Um, I asked uh, Dr. Peter J. Williams, who's basically the warden there now at Tyndale House, what he thought about this passage. And he told me, on the balance of probability, he was about 60 to 80% sure that it was original. And so there are uh, reasons for people to think that this is authentic and is historical, and we're going to go through through that as well. And so some of those reasons are that we do find the passage in some early manuscripts. And the other thing that's very telling is we find it not only in, in multiple manuscripts, but from multiple geographic locations, and that's very telling. And it's also important that this passage is all also alluded to by three of the early church fathers, even Justin Martyr, who, who's writing in the middle of the second century. So even earlier than some of these manuscripts where it's missing, we have early church fathers talking about it. I'm going to read just quickly uh, a note from the Net Bible, the NET Bible, on the criticism around this, the textual criticism. It says, These verses generally fit Luke's style. Arguments can be given on both sides about whether scribes would tend to include or admit such comments about Jesus' humanity and an angel's help. But even if the verses are not literarily authentic, they are probably historically authentic. This is due to the fact that the text was well known in several locales from an early, early period. Since there are no synoptic parallels to this account, and since there is no obvious reason for adding these verses here, it's very likely that such verses recount a part of actual suffering of our Lord. Nevertheless, because of the serious doubts to these verses, authenticity, they've been put in brackets. And so there's good reasons for both sides of this view. And if you're someone out there that that has faith in this, there is good reason and evidence to support that faith. Thank you for sharing that. Um, It's important, you know, the Bible is such a key to so many people's faith. It's important that we emphasize uh, that the overwhelming number of variants, again, have 
no effect on meaning. Many of them, we cover those that did. Um, we truly do have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Uh, when I read the case for the real Jesus with Lee Strobel interviewing Dan Wallace, I, I thought it was pretty telling when Dr. Wallace said that Ehrman had made his very best case in misquoting Jesus. And I also like the quote Rabbi uh, Zacharias uses where he talks about getting the believer to think and the thinker to believe. I hope we're doing that with this cast, and we look forward to hearing uh, more from you. Yeah, um, Bruce Metzger, uh, before I read this quote by Metzger, I just want to say, too, that I, I think it's important as, as believers that we should never fear seeking the truth. We should never fear uh, evidence. To me, putting faith somewhere is putting it in the direction of that evidence. But there's a really great quote here by Bruce Metzger. And Bruce Metzger, for those of you who don't know who are listening, was one of the great textual critics, pro- probably the greatest uh, of the 20th century. And he was actually Bart Ehrman's mentor. And this is a quote by, by Bart Ehrman. <clears throat> it says, Bruce Metzger is one of the great scholars in modern times. I dedicated my book to him because he was both my inspiration for going into textual criticism and the person who trained me in the field. I have nothing but respect and admiration for him. And even though we disagree on important religious questions, he is a firmly committed Christian and I am not. We are in complete agreement on a number of very important historical and textual questions. If he and I were put in a room and asked to hammer out a consensus statement on what we thought of the original text of the New Testament, <clears throat> probably looked like there would be very few points of disagreement, maybe one or two dozen out of many thousands. The position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's position that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. And so I just want people to think about this example. If you, if you were sitting in a classroom and you had somebody up on a chalkboard or a whiteboard write out a paragraph and you had you know, a couple hundred people in there and beforehand we took you know, a fourth of them and said, hey, you're going to spell things wrong, you're going to mess up this and you had some things happen maybe on purpose. Even the people that were trying would do some things wrong uh, on accident. Do you think you'd be able to get back to what that original said? And it's interesting, uh, Dr. Wallace uh, talks about this. He's conducted experiments like this uh, over the last 30 years. And the furthest they've been off is four words. Sometimes they'll even get it exactly right. And so when people say, uh, we don't know what the original is, there's an underlying Greek, uh, what they call critical text. And in that text, in a couple of texts that almost all the Bible translations out there go off of, when it comes to a word that has a variant, there's usually you know three or four different readings, and we know it's one of those. It's not as if they have no idea what it says. Most of the time they know, hey, it's one of these choices. And so I just think people need to get this information in context so they don't get the wrong idea about the Bible. Exactly. Thank you. I am so glad we can openly talk about these issues so people who are trying to believe in the message of Christ can understand what the realities are as they examine what many in the world are saying, as we've talked about over these series of casts so far, and we'll continue to. Um, you know, I think that each of us can reflect on the fact that, again, as has been said, the changes that we've talked about or um, don't change the fact that Jesus of Nazareth came to the world, taught wonderful things, healed the sick, raised the dead, and was crucified for the sins of the world and was resurrected. Um, so, in fact, yeah, the fact that these instances we covered were like the greatest hits of the 1% of variants that are viable is very, very telling to us. 
you know, we have a very stable and trustworthy New Testament, which gives us a true portrait of Jesus Christ. So I'd like to leave our listeners with a quote from probably the world's leading textual critic that Dave referred to, Bruce Metzger. He spent his entire life looking at this evidence and was a firmly committed Christian. You know, when an interviewer started to ask if his scholarship had diluted his faith, Metzger jumped in and said, on the contrary, it has built it. When Metzger closed that interview, he said, you know, I've asked questions all my life. I've dug into the text. I've studied this thoroughly. And today I know with confidence that my trust in Jesus has been well-placed, very well-placed. So remember that Jesus told us to love him with our mind as well as our heart. Knowing this information can really, I think, help us uh, serve to secure our faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for listening to this uh, episode of I Believe podcast and our Bible series with special guest D.M. Johnson. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again, Dave. Thanks. Thank you for listening to I Believe, Expressions of Faith with host Karen Trifoletti. For the video of this podcast, visit our website at ibelievepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ibelievepodcast. Follow us on Twitter or give us a call at 185-NO-GOD-1 with your sincere questions. Karen would love to hear from you. If you like this podcast, you can help support it by subscribing to it in iTunes or writing a review. Post a link on your blog or Facebook page. As always, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast may not represent those of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or that of Fair Mormon. Thanks for listening.